Exactly. Exactly. And cover up. We have a very special episode today I'm very excited about. I'm actually nervous. I'm never nervous. I think I'm just, I don't know what's going on. Um, anyways, welcome back. Uh, today's a little different. Uh, Lee is missing, and I don't mean he's missing in a bad way. Like, we know where he is, and he's on vacation. Yeah, he's surrounded by mangoes and iguanas mm-hmm. and doubles and tasty and food. Heat and heat and warmth. Yep. So we're all very jealous. Um, but our topic today is the psychology of conspiracy thinking. And so in order to um, fill the void that Lee has left behind with some specific knowledge, we have a special guest host, Dr. Mandy Wintink. Hello. Hello. She is a neuroscientist, a psychologist. She's a yogi. She's a life coach. She's an ultimate Frisbee player. She's like a lifelong learner. She's like, (laughs) I could be here for two hours listing all the things that Mandy is. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And the other person that you know is Nathan. I can't forget about Nathan. Nathan Um, Radke. I'm always here. And I'm Elena Papianis. So Nathan has our whole like life planned out for us here. Right. This is what's going on today. Yeah. We've done a bunch of these episodes, and we've looked at conspiracy theory from uh, a historical perspective, mostly focusing mm-hmm. on the Cold War, of course. The Cold War will come up today again. Sociological perspective, looking at how uh, we're affected by the people around us and the social context. We've looked at uh, political perspective. We've looked at philosophical perspectives. Mm-hmm. And we've done this because between the three of us, uh, Elena, you, and Lee and I, we have degrees in history and sociology and political science and philosophy. But we've never examined it from a, a neurological perspective. We've never looked at the psychological perspective, which I think is a really crucial aspect. Mm-hmm. We and brought we it are, up a bit before, but we've never had like the depth of knowledge to really get in there. Yeah, because we don't know what we're talking no. about. <laughs> but you know who does know what she's talking I do about? Know. I do know. She's sitting right here. And she's sitting right here. Mandy. Um, so yeah, hopefully I do have some uh, knowledge in this area. Um, I think... I mean, I was really interested when you asked me to come, partially because I'm a huge fan and I listen to you all the time, but Aww. also <laughs> because I, I just, I love obviously thinking about the human mind and the human brain and how it works. And I had never actually thought about uh, why we develop conspiracy thinking. And so when you asked me that, of course, I just started diving into it and, you know, kind of approaching it from a few different angles. And uh yeah, so, so I've got a, a few things that I think we can talk about today. Sweet. Well, the human brain is such an extraordinary thing. Uh, I've heard it said, and this is true at the moment I'm saying it, I'm sure it won't be true forever, but it, it's the single most complicated thing we've ever discovered in nature. Yeah, I honestly think it is. And every time I go to the Society for Neuroscience meeting, and it's an academic meeting, but there's like over 35,000 neuroscientists who go, and, I, and every one of us walks away feeling completely overwhelmed because like imagine going mm-hmm. to a place where you've got... 10,000 posters in one day and that's times five days and like you can't even begin to to know you know even a small one percent of it never mind right. um, all of it but yeah it's absolutely fascinating and there's things that are our knowledge about it is changing all the time so and, and it's basically the reason why we've been able to succeed like if you had given me a list of all of the animals on earth and you said, which one mm-hmm. of these is going to do really, really well? I wouldn't have picked us. I mean, we're slow. Mm-hmm. Our teeth aren't very sharp. We're not all that powerful compared to other lots of other animals. Yeah, most animals yeah. can basically eat our lunch. Yeah. Like, have either of you ever been chased or threatened by a squirrel? 
Um. I haven't. My partner has. See? Oh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in any room full of more than about 15 people, you're going to find one person in that room who has been threatened by a I squirrel. I just got an image of that. I don't think I've ever seen that happen. They're crazy. Oh, wow. they're terrifying. Really? Like, we are squishy. We are vulnerable. We're yeah. easily chokeable. Like, yeah. we are the most killable thing. We are. And yet, seven and a half billion of us, and we're on every continent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's for two reasons. One, we've got this very complicated brain. And two, uh, we're hypersocial. Mm-hmm. I think those are the things that allow right. humans to survive. Those are two amazing qualities and characteristics to have. But maybe, as we'll see today, maybe they go some way to explaining why we're also occasionally vulnerable to this conspiratorial thinking, mm-hmm. particularly inaccurate conspiratorial mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. But, and I, I actually think that that makes sense for thinking about the brain in, in all different ways, because we we're, there's always this, it's like a double-edged sword, right? So, you know, that which gives us life can also destroy us. And I think some of the higher ends of conspiracy thinking are, are exactly that as well. So it's to be explored, but also understood the, the value of it. I think we'll get into that. And then also, you know, when it flips over to totally. being There's like a limit that when we cross, it becomes dangerous or, or destructive mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we do something that I think we've never done before? Why don't we talk about what a conspiracy theory is? Oh, yeah. I mean, this should have come up in one of our previous <laughs> yeah. three episodes, yeah. but it never really has. So what is a conspiracy theory? It's the idea that there is a group of people who are secretly manipulating something that affects you and almost always, unless it's like a surprise birthday party or something, it's almost always to your detriment. Mm-hmm. It's always something that's that's harmful to you. And that's sort of the nature of the conspiracy theory. So what are some of the psychological aspects that go into something like that? Mm-hmm. So I, I want just to talk about this uh, systematic review. I don't know if that's too much to say right now, but <laughs> that I, I read and it was just published in 2019. And part of why I went to that was because there has been, you know, a decent amount of, of psychological research looking at why we, or what are the correlates of people, um, of behaviors and people who have conspiracy thinking tendencies. So sorry, the systematic review is like a review of the literature. That's all. It's sort of a compilation yeah. of what's been written already. Yeah. Okay, just yeah. Double check. Yeah. Good yeah. point. Um, so it's looking at everything that's already been published up mm-hmm. until that point. And so a couple things that sort of came out from that was that like just what are the things that are correlated with that kind of thinking and um, one of the things that came out was like anxiety and fear behavior so people who have a tendency towards more anxiety or more fearful behavior tend to also have more conspiracy thinking tendencies Mm -hmm. and then related to that was also paranormal belief systems or believing in paranormal activity and that I mean, that actually isn't that surprising because there's been a lot of different studies that have suggested that and and people sort of believe that that kind of makes sense. But those are are two things. And another thing that I thought was really interesting was that narcissism (laughs) was also related. That makes sense. That does make sense. Everyone's plotting against me. Totally. A narcissist, it's so self-centered in their view. So everything is like to their own detriment. Everyone's conspiring against them. It's all, okay, interesting. Well, like anytime I come back from a party, I always agonize about it for hours. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I said this. Did people misread this? 
did somebody misunderstand this? Did I right. offend this person? And then I think, no, nobody cared that I was at the party at all. Nobody was even listening to oh, me. Oh, come on. We were listening. Well, <laughs> but like much less than I think. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's true of all of us. Yeah. So that actually makes a lot of sense. That does. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so in the because this is a systematic review, they were sort of looking at things across like lots of different domains. And before this, there were some studies that had said exaggerated self-love and, and high, heightened uh, self-esteem would be related to that so that kind of didn't really make sense Mm -hmm. but when you actually look at it it's it's really a factor of narcissism so Mm -hmm. if you have um, high confidence but you don't have narcissism then you actually don't tend towards having um, more conspiracy thinking so so it really is a narcissistic type thing and the anxiety and fear stuff makes a lot of sense too because think of like two people in a relationship though if there's one there who has a lot of anxiety they're more likely going to be the one who's picking up on all these quote unquote cues mm-hmm. or piecing this these things together that don't go together and making up some story about what it means or like giving these things meaning that don't necessarily have meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if you're in a relationship and you're feeling insecure and you notice that your partner is checking their phone more often, mm-hmm. you notice that they get a haircut, maybe they go to the gym more often. Like if you're secure in your relationship, that's just a bunch of background nonsense. Totally. doesn't mean anything. But if you're insecure, that turns into they are cheating on me. Totally. Mm-hmm. And there's a conspiracy against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's probably the Masons. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably. It always is. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I want to mention was uh, something in psychology that is studied a lot is, is the, uh, or are the five big personality traits, um, which include uh, neuroticism, and that's sort of how sensitive and um, nervous you are, agreeableness, so uh, going with the flow mm-hmm. versus uh, challenging the system, uh, openness to experience, uh, conscientiousness, which is more about like efficiency and being organized or not, um, and extroversion, introversion, which we're all sort of familiar with that idea of being out there or mm-hmm. being more inside. And so the research before this had had said that these the factors of openness to experience was correlated. Uh, don't get too excited though. So mm-hmm. openness to experience I was, about was to get too excited. I know I saw it. <laughs> um, openness to experience, agreeableness um, in the reverse. So a negative correlation was related to conspiracy thinking and the neuroticism, sensitivity, nervousness thing. And so that's sort of what's been out there. But then when they did a systematic review and looked at all of this together, they there was nothing significant that came out. And so the conclusion from the authors was that these factors actually aren't really important mm-hmm. in conspiracy thinking. And I think why that is so huge is that that's such a focus within psychology, trying to understand belief systems and why people do things. And yet here we're saying they actually aren't that big of a deal. And I think what is more important is what did come out as being really important, and that was social and political factors. Mm-hmm. And so, and a big one from there was how much alienation someone feels from from the group. Um, and I don't know if we want to get into that just yet, but I think that was really interesting to me when you think about, you know, just lots of examples of humans yeah. being in these these groups where they feel like the rest of the world is against them, like incels, for Absolutely. example. Like, incels, I mean, and we've mentioned this before, this idea of, like, think about the level of community that people achieve who are, who like, truthers. They are all truthers. They share this identity. They all identify in these particular ways. They or like, flat earthers. Or flat earthers, mm-hmm. right? And often they are, like, they are alienated from, you know, the mainstream ideas. So that that 
that in and of itself bonds them as a group. Mm -hmm. So they feel more social cohesion within their, their, you know, their margins. Um, and they bond over that. I think it's interesting because sometimes I get this question when people find out what I do and they say, well, what sort of person believes conspiracy theories? And I say, I don't think there is a sort of person. Mm -hmm. So I'm relieved to hear that apparently the psychology backs me up on this. There isn't a sort of person that believes conspiracy theories. The sort of person that believes conspiracy theories is a human being with a human brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I that's what I'm taking away from all of this is that we it it is coming down to the individual. Like there's and it's probably a complicated, you know, formula of like how much anxiety you have, what kind of community support you have mm-hmm. and how much alienation you feel and also scientific thinking. So I wasn't I haven't mentioned that yet, but like level of ability to think critically and having been taught critical thinking and rationality and scientific thinking is negatively correlated. So you have less tendency towards uh, conspiracy thinking when you're able to think more clearly through some of the, the information presented to you. And of course, something else that we always like to bring up when we're talking about uh, sort of discrediting conspiracy thinking, some conspiracies are real. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about a lot of these in previous podcasts. And some of the ones that are real sound ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like MK Ultra sounds ridiculous. COINTELPRO sounds wildly over the top. The idea that the Americans were going to nuke the moon seems like something cartoonish. And yet, in our research, we found that these were all genuine, actual conspiracies. So this is another aspect to it, of course, is that there are real conspiracies. Mm-hmm. This is what I figured we could do today, is let's look at two hypotheses. We're getting quite scientific Ooh. now, <laughs> because Mandy is here. Because yeah. Mandy's here. we got to sound smart. Yes, I'm trying. I'm trying real hard. Let's look at two hypotheses that try to explain this sort of conspiratorial thinking. Now, the first one, we're going to look at this idea of evolution and how perhaps there are qualities that were helpful to, to us to help us to, to survive, but they had these weird byproducts, and maybe conspiratorial thinking is one of those weird byproducts. The second one is also about evolution, but it's going to argue that, no, conspiracy thinking isn't a weird byproduct of evolution. It's actually a product that conspiracy thinking helped human beings to survive, especially in those early days of humanity. So why don't we get into those? Why don't we start with the idea that this is a strange byproduct of other helpful characteristics? Maybe why don't we start off by explaining how like a quality or a characteristic of, of human could be a weird byproduct of something useful. And I think the best example that I can think of that helps me is... I want you guys to react to something. I'm going to, I'm going to say a couple words, and I want you to react emotionally how you would react to this. Okay. Mm. The words are, and and do it out loud so that the podcast listeners okay. can hear. After it. each word, or at the end of the list? At the, uh, just um, <laughs> or as it happens. As it just happens. As we feel it. Okay. Like, <laughs> as we feel it. Yeah. Okay. Baby panda. <laughs> mm, that's cute. Out loud. Yeah. Sorry. Nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Potato chips. Mmm. Crunchy. Now, finding baby pandas cute, does that help us to survive? I mean, if it, if I was a mother panda, it would. Yes. Because I would then want to take care of my cute little baby panda. Sure, but you're not a mother panda. But, you're a, you're yes. a mother human. I am a mother human. But they're... Their babies in it in themselves mm-hmm. are cute, and part of it is how their face is um, created or has evolved, because uh, they're all squished together. Mm-hmm. So they have usually babies of any sort have a bigger forehead. This is actually why m- many women fi- who are um, heterosexual find bald men attractive, oh, because they've got babies. yeah, they're like big babies. 
so I would say there's actually, as we do find yeah, all general, babies. Right. Yeah, attractive. A babiness. So is, finding yeah. finding a human baby adorable and cute, that seems like a super helpful adaptation. Absolutely, yes. especially when they're screaming and crying. Which they are basically all of the time, because yeah. babies are the worst. Right. Yeah. <laughs> finding a bald man attractive is yes. a byproduct. Yeah, that, that yes. isn't helpful, but that's just a weird byproduct. Yeah. It's right. like, but, and you don't think to yourself, hey, this guy looks like yeah. a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I want to protect this guy. could really see him in a diaper. Or when you... <laughs> Oof. That may or may not make it into the episode. <laughs> Got to keep it. <laughs> or seeing a kitten and wanting to protect that kitten. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a natural, visceral thing for a lot of human beings. But exactly as as you say, Mandy, finding the human baby, that's a super useful adaptation. Mm-hmm. But then this weird byproduct is we find all of the baby mammals kind of cute. And the baby crocodiles, mm-hmm. which also have great big eyeballs. Oh, interesting. Can I add yeah. another story that's I find a yeah. good example? There's um, lots of cool videos that I show in some of my classes on just studying behavior about geese. And geese have this like fixed action pattern, we call it, where they if an egg rolls out of their nest, they'll like use their beak and pull it back in. But if you stick a light bulb in front of them, or if you stick like a ball of any sort, they'll roll it into their nest. Really? And that's another example. Like yeah. there, there's this pattern recognition uh-huh. of pulling stuff in. Which that's, is super useful. Right. So that's the skill. And then, and then it, they generalize to other things right. because why, why not? Yeah. But the byproduct is they have light bulbs in their nest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so something like potato chips. Cool. Like, I love potato chips. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often have potato chips when we are podcasting, as, even though they're crunchy. But my love of potato chips does not help me to survive. If anything, it's going the other direction. Mm-hmm. But my brain rewarding me for eating fat, my brain rewarding me for eating salt, for tens of thousands of years when fat and salt would have required me to go out hunting and risking my life, like, that reward drove me to go out and hunt mm-hmm. back when... Fat and salt was hard to come by. Now it's super easy to come by, but my brain doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. And it's still rewarding me. Every time I have a potato chip, my brain's like, hey, you got a mammoth. Way to go, buddy. Congratulations. So again, like a weird byproduct of an adaptation that's super useful. And luckily, though, our brain has also evolved to have a very good appraisal system, like a, a judgment center, which is the frontal prefrontal cortex. And so it actually then is how we override some of those byproducts. Um, so yes, the potato chips aren't great, but luckily we can think about it very rationally, some of us, and say, okay, no, I'm not going to eat all of those potato chips yeah. or whatever. Yeah, although often I will say that, <laughs> and then I will eat them. Mm-hmm. All right, so those are examples of byproducts. So then how could conspiracy thinking be a byproduct of characteristics that would have been helpful to us to us for survival? And I think that it's pretty clear that something like pattern recognition is something that our brains are great at. So good. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely would have helped us to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of wired to detect meaningful patterns or create meaningful patterns when they're not actually there. I mean, there's some good examples of stuff just even in like the visual field. Like we, uh, you know, we detect patterns in like random pictures um, mm-hmm. and then we can make meaning out of it. Or Oh yeah, like the know. Mother Mary on a piece of toast or whatever. And, like, yeah. Or um, oh, well, we're particularly good at under- like finding faces, which yes. makes sense because think about how important faces are to our survival. Totally. We have to recognize people and decide whether they're friend or foe. We have to be able to, I mean, some of you can do this, find emotion in people's faces and figure out what those emotions are. 
Yeah. Like that is absolutely crucial. So that we can because we joke that Nathan's a robot. (laughs) Even just like with being able to see hands or not. Mm. So if you're, we get really anxious um, and like our stress response starts to go up when we're talking with a person uh, who we may not know, who's not like a regular friend and we can't see their hands. Okay. And I'll keep my hands up here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the like, because subconsciously we're starting to think like where what's what are they holding totally and what's going on and why are their hands not being um exposed shown and because those are where we can attack right as as humans Um, i wonder if there's that cultural component then that we see so many cultures where waving handshaking yeah hugs all these things involve here are my hands yeah that's a good point yeah absolutely that's what the one psychologist in particular would suggest is that the that's how we we make people Mm -hmm. like us is by showing Mm -hmm. our hands and stuff so pattern recognition is crucial. It's our ability to, in some ways, predict the future. Oh, in the past, when the sky got dark and I heard rumbles, it started to rain. Mm-hmm. And so in the future, I can predict using this pattern recognition. Hey, there's that same pattern that I saw the last time it rained. Or, or the like last time... threats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Threat assessment. The yeah. last time we got attacked by saber-toothed tigers, the following things happened. When we see those things happening, there's probably a saber-toothed mm-hmm. tiger. Mm-hmm. So threat uh, measurement, absolutely crucial. Associative learning. This idea that we associate one thing with another thing. Uh, When this happens, this happens. This is how we come up with cause and effect reasoning, which is basically how not only we understand everything that happens in the world, but also guides every one of the actions that we take. Because all of the Mm -hmm. actions that we take, we do so assuming that our cause will cause some kind of effect. But how can cause and effect reasoning go bad? Well, one of the um, places it can go bad is when there isn't actually a cause when there is no cause, like even if you look at pigeons, like Skinner's pigeons, mm-hmm. you know, doing the pecking, pecking something yeah. in order to get a, a uh, treat or... B.F. Skinner, famous pigeon experimenter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> also known as a psychologist mm-hmm. and behaviorist. So if, if the treats are just given out randomly, the pigeons will start to uh, associate their patterns totally. with that. And it's actually uh, been shown to sort of what we now call in, in that literature and that research superstitious behavior. Mm-hmm. So the pigeons will start demonstrating superstitious behavior because no, there is actually no cause, but they're imposing a cause to and it or a, a yeah. thoughtful po- Humans cause. do that too. I forget what studies I was just talking about, but same thing if you like realize, oh, like I tapped that thing three times with this finger and then this light went on as like in studies that yeah. they've been doing with people. Well, and gamblers. also, yeah. What, oh, yeah, sorry? gamblers. gamblers. Yep. Yeah. Scientists. I know, like I know tons of scientists, you know, I've, I spent in my PhD, I spent two years trying to figure out a protocol to get this certain thing working. And then finally at the end it works. And you're like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what I changed. And so you've got all these random scientists out there who are like, you got to stand on one foot in order to uh, make <laughs> this Petri dish jiggle a certain way. And it sounds totally ridiculous, yeah. but you're, just so happy that it worked that you're just going to repeat it exactly the same way and you'll attribute it to whatever cause you can attribute it to yeah and we're hardwired for it yeah Yeah. now in latin i believe that mistake is called non causa pro causa Mm. Mm. fancy (laughs) i researched this one wow yeah (laughs) so that's an excellent example of how cause and effect can go poorly um it's a super important way for us to understand the world but it could also lead to superstition hey the last time i wore these socks my team won Mm-hmm. I better wear these socks again. Have you ever seen Rafael Nadal um, when he's like on the sideline on a chair? Watch, look up video of him and he like, his bottles have to be perfectly like lined up so he'll fidget with them until it's like perfect. I mean, he famously like 
picks his shorts and does all sorts of things like right before he, he serves. Or he's, like, he's got so many little uh, like tweaks or whatever or superstitions that he does. And I mean, he's famously successful. Well, and it would be a bit of a <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, yeah. wouldn't it? Because if you weren't able to do those, even though those are clearly not causal relations, mm-hmm. but if you weren't able to do them, then psychologically you would become probably anxious and totally. maybe you'd, you'd play poorly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about pattern recognition? Pattern recognition is something that we've already talked about being extremely useful but how can it go badly like how can pattern recognition go poorly pattern recognition going poorly when we're connecting dots that aren't necessarily connected so um we see something as a threat that actually isn't a threat but we've imagined it like we talked about that couple with one of them's anxious and they're putting together these pieces of so-called evidence in order to determine okay the pattern is the pattern says that they are cheating on me I think the problem is, like, the world that we are surrounded by is extremely chaotic. There's a lot of background mm-hmm. noise that is just sort of a bunch of random nonsense that happens. We hate random nonsense so much. Oh, yeah. Like, our brains just reject the idea that things can be random nonsense. We hate coincidences. We hate all of these things. We want there to be some kind of greater meaning to it, to the point that uh, this is something that we did in the Illuminati episode. We played a bunch of music backwards. And, of course, you end up with just a bunch of nonsense, but your brain is struggling so hard mm-hmm. to try to piece it together that basically you can find messages in backwards music. Even and you're though, more suggestible in that moment. So if Nathan says, listen for these words, that this, you know, the next time you hear it, you actually do tend to hear those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. We're bad at recognizing randomness. We don't know what randomness looks like. They've done these interesting experiments, and Lee actually does this in his class, where you flip a coin a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And... If you flip a coin a hundred times, there's going to be moments where you get maybe five heads in a row or six tails in a row. And you're going to think, wait, that's, that doesn't seem random. That seems like there's a pattern there. But there isn't one. Mm-hmm. It's just that over a long enough time, just some weird stuff is going to happen in the background. And they've done studies where they have flipped a bunch of coins randomly, recorded it, and then shown it to people. And they've asked, was this random or is there a pattern here? And they found that people are very bad at realizing that it's just randomness. Hmm. That often people will see a pattern, kind of like that pigeon. It's like, no, no, I see the pattern here, and this is the pattern, but there was never a pattern there at all. Mm-hmm. In that uh, systematic review I was talking about, where they referred to anxiety and fear as being highly correlated with conspiracy thinking, they also talked about how people in those states have a higher need to make sense of their world and to control Mm -hmm. their environment. And so, um, like, grasping onto a conspiracy theory of any sort would give a little bit more control or a a sense of control when there otherwise is none. Totally. Like, 9-11 is a perfect example of that kind of happening collectively, right? Like, this huge tragedy that... I mean, when you look at the history, which we have looked at some of the history, you can understand the context of an attack like that happening. But with without that knowledge, and I mean, it's a shock. It was a shock regardless, because um, at the time, a lot of people wouldn't have been thinking about that history in Afghanistan. But yeah, so like fear, it's so visible, this like, you know, traumatic public tragedy. And then you have collectively all these people trying to make sense of it, trying to feel, like you said, like some sense of control. And then you get this like margin of people who start to believe that it is the power, you know, George Bush or whoever that's actually, um, and, created and on, this. A, on a day like that, you're going to see so much weird, random stuff. Mm-hmm. We talked about JFK. Mm-hmm. Remember the umbrella man in JFK? Yes. Like just 
random nonsense background noise. This guy had shown up with an umbrella to try to protest John F. Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, and it was this long, weird story. But that umbrella goes up at the exact same moment that Kennedy is killed, and people thought, this has to be connected. Mm -hmm. There's no way that umbrella popped up at the same time as top of his head popped up, and that they weren't in some way connected. But no, it was just a coincidence they happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's a good segue into the idea that what if detecting conspiracy theories isn't a weird byproduct? It it isn't something going wrong with our pattern recognition. It's not something going wrong with our cause and effect relationship engine. What if it's something going right? What if our ability to detect conspiracies, even when we're wrong about them, what if that was something that helped early humans to survive? What would that look like? So let's look at, for example, our, some of our closest relatives, chimpanzees. How complicated is chimpanzee society? Like, how complex are the, the levels of chimp society? I mean, isn't there always some sort of alpha? Yeah, there's often an alpha who's in charge, and then there's, like, some other males who are trying to, like, climb up the ladder and maybe take him out, to the point that they have witnessed this. Lower-level chimps will band together, mm. form, like, an alliance, or a conspiracy, if you will, mm-hmm. to take out the alpha. And so that alpha, if he isn't keeping an eye out for conspiracies amongst the other chimps, that guy's in trouble. Totally. And those are some of our closest relatives. We don't really have very good information about what early humans were like, like 80,000 years ago, 70,000 years ago. But we can look to today, we can look to the chimps and the bonobos and, and some of our relatives to try to piece it together. I mean, those early humans living in small societies it would have been super important for them to detect other human threats from outside their mm-hmm. their group. Uh, other groups may be moving into their territory, but also from inside their own group, maybe making power plays. I have a really random um, example. Have you seen Angry Birds, the movie? No. That is a very random yes. example. Yes. There's these this like pig family, or I can't remember, this pig society or something, and a few of them show up, and then there's like the red Angry Bird guy who doesn't trust him. And everyone else is like, no, they're great. These pig, these pig, I forget what they're called, but they have little pig noses. And, uh, but it, and it turns out they're after the, the bird's eggs because they want to eat them. So they're after their kids. And he's the only one being like, hey, if you're just visitors, like, why do more of you keep showing up? Like, he keeps seeing evidence of it being more than what they're saying on the surface. And then they end up stealing all of their eggs. And then they all believe him finally. And then they have to go and rescue their eggs. No, we should point out that, why were you watching this film? <laughs> My daughter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In case you're wondering, yeah. why was Elena watching Angry Birds? Yeah. But that's, that is actually a really good example, because it shows you that your society needs somebody who is, for the yeah. lack of a better word, kind of paranoid. Yeah, the threat detector. Because sometimes paranoia reveals the truth. Like, you need the Cassandra. You need somebody who's like, guys, this is yeah. a problem. So, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want your entire society to be made up of people like that. No, but, but that's when we end up having like cults that live in places and believing that everyone's out to get them and then terrible things happen. Even if you think about our current, you know, human species and, and just examples like schizophrenia, you know, which is a lot of the stuff that was also ta- is also talked about in psychology in terms of conspiracy thinking refers to uh, schizophrenia-like behaviors and particularly the paranoias um, mm-hmm. and belief that other people are out to get you and the grandiosity and all of those things. And, you know, I've always been really interested in schizophrenia because there's, you know, 
in some ways they detect like some parts of how they think they detect things that other people don't and so there's like there's little nuggets of truth in some of the mm-hmm. ways they're thinking but then it's that double-edged sword where it becomes so all-consuming that it's the person becomes dysfunctional typically when they're unmedicated and stuff that they're right. they're not able to function with that level of you know awareness maybe and so maybe those are the like the the detectors out there and they're sort of taking it for everyone else. I mean, in my mind too, that connects with the anxiety because again, if we talk, go back to that couple in a relationship if one of them's more anxious, they're sort of seeing a clue of something before maybe another person who is in that relationship would see it and they give it meaning sooner than they necessarily need to. Like maybe if they just played it out and they realize it's nothing, but they're like detecting it sooner than mm-hmm. another person might and, and kind of attributing it because of their anxiety. They're more yeah. like intuitive to those things. And one of the things that I came across when I was uh, reading about this was that a lot of the the research in conspiracy thinking and psychology has typically focused on it as a disordered state. And then some people now are saying, you know what, it might not actually be a disordered state. Mm -hmm. And we should be thinking of this so that it's not just correlated with, you know, schizophrenia-like behaviors or anxiety, but that it actually is just like a type of thinking. Um, And to label it as that is actually doing a disservice to understanding really the nature of conspiracy thinking. Yeah, it's not a disorder. Perhaps it's just an aspect of being a human. Mm -hmm. And in fact, maybe as, as we've talked about, maybe it's a really important aspect. Maybe it's something that you don't want to be without in your society. Maybe if you're an early society, there's only a couple dozen of you. Maybe if there isn't one amongst you, who has that kind of more conspiratorial mindset, maybe you're not going to make it because mm-hmm. maybe you're going to miss a threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it also speaks to how we work with other brains and kind of coming back to the idea of when you find community, it reinforces that way of thinking. And one of the, probably the best ways of not just getting stuck in that is to listen to other brains and the way they think of things. You know, I often think of the brain as, it's great in and of itself, but it just can't function on its own. Like it, it, there's too many flaws within how we think about things that if you only lived in within mm-hmm. your own brain, it's just not going to get you anywhere. So you need like a second totally. brain or a third brain to like kind of bounce ideas off of. Um, and so when you're in a whole community that's, you know, the truthers of whatever, then you just reinforce that same kind of thing. I mean, the right. same thing happened, I think, with a lot of us in the election when we had all been, if you were right wing, you were watching the right wing stuff. If you're left wing, you were doing the mm-hmm. left wing stuff. And you didn't realize that there's all these other ideas from the other side. And so it kind of shocked a lot of people to see that, you know, things happened the way they did. And mm-hmm. so we really do need to bring in the critical thinking of other minds and other brains so that we could actually see things for as they actually are, because totally. none of us can see things as they actually are. Yeah, we need to brain. fill in those gaps. And we've talked about it in this podcast before this idea that what you think sort of d- well determines what you see, because that is those are the filters and the lenses within mm-hmm. which you're using to interpret the world. Mm-hmm. So if it is all in this one tight knit community that believes one thing, it, like you said, it just reinforces that. It's like that continual confirmation bias versus if you do have these other perspectives, be like, oh, right, like this is another way to see this or this is another lens that I could use that I'm currently not using. It does kind of allow you to have a more accurate mm-hmm. picture. Yeah. Yeah. There's one more thing that I wanted to talk about with this ad- adaptive hypothesis. And it's this idea that uh, something we might call erring on the side of caution. And this is something else that we've talked about, I think, in the Illuminati episode. Mm-hmm. Um, or no, it was a Satanist episode. <laughs> this idea that you're better off being overly cautious and being wrong. 
than undercautious and being wrong. Mm-hmm. To use a very uh, simple example, if you see a stick and you think, ah, it's a snake, you're going to react, you're going to jump away, you're going to look silly and nothing bad is going to happen to you. Maybe you're going to laugh. Maybe the people around you will laugh. It'll be fine. If you see a snake and think, oh, it's a stick, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And so you're better off being overly cautious and making mistakes that err on the side of caution than you are making mistakes that err on the side of eh, everything's probably fine because things are almost never fine. Mm-hmm. So this fits well with this uh, article that you sent me to look at the other day, this Project Rand um, report basically on using superstitions for like in warfare for psychological purposes, this idea, so they bring up chain letters a lot. Like, do you remember getting yeah. chain letters when you were little? No, I no? never got them. Ugh. I sent them out, but I never got them back. Oh, okay. I mean, you're kind of lucky in that way, but still, Don't I mean, take it personally. mind you, now it's so much easier. People can just forward things on email versus like right. we had to write that stuff out, you know? Um, but this idea that someone might not even really be that superstitious, but they err on the side of caution by saying, well, what harm is, what harm is it going to do if I send this to, to four other people? Because on the other hand, if it is true and these soldiers die because I didn't do it, then like I better err on the side of caution and just forward it along. Exactly. And actually, maybe this is a good moment to talk about that report. Uh, this comes from the Rand Corporation, which I'm surprised we have never brought up before. Yeah, have the, we not? No, we've never talked about the no. Rand Corporation. It is wild. It was formed in 1947 as a military think tank. They've come up with a lot of sort of really bizarre futuristic weapons and looked at asymmetric warfare and all these other very Cold War things. So that's why I'm surprised we haven't mm-hmm. talked about it already. This report that, uh, that we've been reading is by uh, Gene Hungerford, and it's called The Exploitation of Superstitions for Purposes of Psychological Warfare from April of 1950. And I think that this is a good thing for us to talk about because so far we've been discussing how, you know, conspiracy thinking is kind of either it's a byproduct of helpful adaptations or it is itself a helpful adaptation. But what if it can be used against us? What if this thing, this alarm system that we have developed to to try to protect us from threats, what if it can make us vulnerable to threats? And that's what makes this report so interesting because it's basically looking at how to weaponize our tendencies towards conspiratorial and supernatural thinking. First of all, they it's uh, it starts with the context of World War II, and there's basically examples of how they might use superstitions to like decrease the morale of, let's say, the peasants in a certain village to try and make them feel negative about their war effort or or their ability to withstand you know the enemy's attacks and things, um, and so. For example, there's one... Okay, so during the Italian campaign, I'm just going to read from it. British army magicians use their talents to conjure up devices to scare Italian peasants. One such device is described by Captain um, Maskeline as a magic top secret. Quote, our men were able to use illusions of an amusing nature in the Italian mountains, especially when operating in small groups as advanced patrols scouting at the way for their, our general moves forward. In one area, they used a device which was little more than a gigantic scarecrow, about 12 feet high and able to stagger forward under its own power and emit frightful flashes and bangs. This thing scared several Italian Sicilian villages, appearing in the dawn, thumping its deafening way down their streets with great electric blue sparks jumping from it. And the inhabitants, who were mostly illiterate peasants, simply took to their heels for the next village, swearing that the devil was marching ahead of the invading English. And I mean, imagine, like, they must have sounded like they totally lost it when they're going around to these other villages telling them that this is what they saw. Yeah, there was a giant fire-breathing scarecrow. Mm -hmm. 
Clearly, they had researched the fears that were circulating in the area amongst those humans, and they thought this is the thing that we could then use mm -hmm. to capitalize on that. Uh, there's all sorts of examples of this. In the Philippines in 1950, the uh, Americans were fighting a communist guerrilla, uh, a communist guerrilla army called the the Hukbalika. I might have mispronounced that. And what they did was they knew that in that that area there was a supernatural belief that there was a kind of monster called the Aswang, and it was sort of like a kind of vampire. They actually would have American soldiers kidnap one of the guerrilla fighters. They would murder him. They would put two holes in his neck. They would drain all the blood out of him, and then they would leave that body to be found by his compatriots in the hopes that they would then think, oh no, there are monsters mm -hmm. here, we should run away. In the 1970s, the U.S. Army in Vietnam had something called Operation Wandering Soul, where they tried to take advantage of the beliefs of the local of North Vietnamese people by playing the sound of Vietnamese ghosts. And it sounded a little something like this. <laughs> As you would expect. In 1983, something we've talked about before, the KGB tried to take advantage of the conspiracy thinking of the American public, in fact, the world public, through something called Operation Infection, where the KGB planted stories to try to convince people that HIV was actually a CIA operation mm -hmm. to try to control a population. In 1994, the U.S. Air Force was working on a program to try to create like a hologram version of God that they could then shoot over enemy countries. And so then they could have this hologram of God saying, guys, give up. It's me, God. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you. Come on, guys, yeah. enough already. These are all ways that this, these kind of tendencies that we have can be weaponized against us. Totally. Like in moments of fear, increased anxiety, taking advantage of this tendency of ours to see patterns, to make connections. It's... Yeah, it's pretty scary. And so this is where I would turn to our guest ex expert mm -hmm. and ask the question, how can we protect ourselves? You know, the whole time you've been reading these examples, I've been trying to figure out an answer to that. And I, 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 don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's probably what I said before about the, the critical thinking skills versus like, oh, why don't you talk about the brain like the amygdala versus what you were yeah. telling us before. Yeah. yeah, so I think, yeah. I mean, what part of what happens is that we... I mean, luckily, we have this wonderful brain that has evolved this extra layer of, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the rationality, the ability to suppress and inhibit the initial response that are often emotionally driven. And that would be coming from like the amygdala and subcortical uh, regions of the brain where it's just like, it's like our first response. So mm -hmm. like our first response is when we see a stick, you know, is to think that it's a snake. It's the secondary response that the brain offers that, no, that's not actually a snake, that's a stick. 
like we're we're wired to save ourselves first and then the second mm-hmm. part is to think about why that may or may not have been valuable or that's wrong or right or whatever so you know nothing within our, our biology is telling us to think first and then react we react first and then we think and so so we I think we need to accept the fact that we are going to react and then it's how do we train ourselves to think critically about things and um, and that's why you know it, it is co- scientific thinking rational thinking you know take Taking a first-year uh, philosophy course on logic, you know, is probably really important for um, being able to use the frontal part of our brain to its potential mm-hmm. to override these other things. And I think that's where, I mean, whether it's formal education or not, but you know, we a lot of people will go out onto the internet. I mean, one of the things I found was that conspiracy thinking is on the rise. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure that that has to do with the mm-hmm. internet, where now you can read all these things and, and you can reinforce that thinking. So if, I mean, we need better internet literacy, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Hopefully people are getting that through some kind of university system or somewhere else. But um, learning how to sift through all this information and 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 take a critical lens to it. So Especially, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's I think that is the, the main way to protect it. Right, because I think you're right online, especially because you can. Let's say you're looking up, like you're, you have a tendency towards being uh, a flat earther or an anti-vaxer. Like your Google search term is probably going to lend itself towards picking up evi- so-called evidence that supports what you already believe. Like it's not often we Google search the opposite of what we think and, and then that, pull those up and think about it. Like Google's know? algorithm is going to be trying to feed us the things that it thinks that we want. Right. Yeah. It's, it's inherently biased. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's keeping us in that bubble. That's one of the dangers. And because how often do you go past the first page of Google mm-hmm. results? Totally. Yeah. And how often do you use Bing? No, never. Does it still I even exist? forgot what it was. Yeah, it does. Sometimes yeah. I go there. Does, um, does Alta Vista still exist? Oh, I don't know about I that one. Know. But even wasn't it just YouTube? They finally had to change their algorithm because it was it was drawing people towards more and more extreme videos and more and more extreme views in their algorithm, which is you know that's literally sucking people down the rabbit hole of whatever were from wherever they started to some more extreme place. It's like a public health hazard at that point. Mm-hmm. So it seems like what what we've landed on is that conspiracy thinking either if it was a byproduct of helpful things or if it was just genuinely a helpful thing, I think probably some combination of the two is probably accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kept us alive. It's something that we need. It's something that helps us to find dangers. It's something that helps us to recognize threats. And so, uh, Mandy, what you're saying is that we need to kind of embrace that because it is useful and helpful, but also then temper it. Mm-hmm. That we have that initial visceral reaction, that kind of intuition, which can be accurate and useful. Mm-hmm. Can I just back up for a second? And even beyond the like survival value of that, just being able to uh, take shortcuts, like that's one of the other um, issues that's embedded within in this, and that's why we have all these biases because our you know we're trying to use less energy. Like the brain will do as little as possible to keep working, and so if it finds shortcuts, um, you know all the confirmation biases, um, Mm. prejudice, like those are ways that we just like shortcut things so we don't have to work as hard. And the only way out of that is to bring in the frontal contribution of critical thinking and reevaluating it and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. We we temper these, these initial reactions we have with, do you think that it requires, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to become educated. I don't think uh, like formal education is necessarily the only way. It is a way though. Mm -hmm. But do you think that that's what we can do then? We can temper it through educating ourselves, through training ourselves in things like logic and reason and 
and scientific uh, thinking? Personally, I think like logic and understanding arguments and mm -hmm. evidence is the most important thing. I think that's the, and wherever you get that, I mean, if you get it through university grade or where el wherever else, you can get it through doing scientific thinking, you can get it through philosophy, you know, it's just the idea that there's like arguments and evidence. Like, mm -hmm. I think that is like the main thing and that you can evaluate these things critically. So I don't know where we get it, but I do think that that's, that's it because that's ultimately what we're talking about. We're talking about theories. And so if there's conspiracy theories out there, we have to be able to evaluate them. Right. Right. And when there's huge leaps in logic to be able to identify that or logical fallacies and be like, wait a second, that A doesn't necessarily mean that B is true and actually being able to see those gaps. But it's true. Where else? Uh, it's, I'm trying to think of if someone. Yeah. Where else can people get that other than educating themselves? Yeah. Luckily, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways for people to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Including podcast. I mean, you can listen to us. That's a great yeah. start. And you can listen to Mandy's and podcast. Mandy, Mandy <laughs> yeah. why don't you, uh, we'll let you give, we've never done this before. Yeah. But let's let somebody do a plug on our show. Yes. Tell us a bit about Mandyland. Oh, um, <laughs> Mandyland is a space, it's, it's my space where mm -hmm. I can do whatever I want. And, you know, as you mentioned, the many hats that I have, like neuroscience is obviously an interest of mine, really because psychology is an interest of mine. Like I'm a psychologist at heart. Um, but that's allowed me to explore lots of things, which includes paranormal thinking. I think the, the first thing that brought me into psychology was because I was interested in things like ghosts and ESP mm. and telekinesis and like all that stuff. And so back when I was in grade eight, I wanted to be a dream analyst. And I didn't even know what that meant, but I was like, that's what I'm going to cool. be when I grow up. Yeah. And then that, you know, led me into like formally studying psychology. That led me into neuroscience. But I've studied Wiccan. I've, stu I've done some crazy meditation, psychedelic experiences, mm -hmm. you know, like all sorts of things. And, and so to limit myself to just neuroscience has felt... Uh, well, too limiting. Yeah. And so Mandyland just became a place where I could talk about whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah. Like including uh, like even parenting stuff. And yeah. All sorts of, yeah. Yeah. It's Critiques great. against the education system. Yeah. And, <laughs> and where can that be found? Uh, Mandyland.com or Mandyland.ca. I don't even actually know. Mandyland.ca. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try both. <laughs> yeah. First. And it's on Apple Podcasts. All right, so okay. anywhere you find your podcast, including this podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, any other announcements? Uh, um, we've got a, a contest that we're about to uh, announce in which I, if we get enough iTunes oh, yeah. reviews, oh. I am going to get a UFO tattooed on my arm. Whoa. What's the number you set for uh, reviews? We haven't yet. Okay. Uh, Should we announce that, it on Yes, let's announce it right now. I'm okay. going to say right okay. 357. Wow. Okay, that's a high number. Yeah. But that's got to set the bar high. I think high. we can do it. If we get yeah. 357 iTunes in, reviews in a certain time frame. Um, or just sure. when it's or yeah. Uh, let's say by May of 2020. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. Or if we get uh, 250 Instagram subscribers, if either of those two things okay. happen, okay. I'm going to get a UFO tattooed on my arm. Okay. Nice. And pictures of that will go up on our Instagram Definitely. account. Amazing. Okay. Um, do you want to plug our? What's our email address? I never remember it. Podcast at the Uncover Up. Dot com. I refuse to remember it. And you can follow us, us on Instagram, on Facebook, at The Uncover Up as well. And thanks again to Dr. Wintick for yes. coming down to talk thanks, to us. Andy. We really appreciate this it. This sounds like it's over. I'm so sad. We can keep talking more. We can do after the podcast <laughs> stuff. We can keep talking. I got more waffles. Yeah, okay, we can eat great. more waffles. We can take a break and then talk more if we okay. want. Okay. All right, let's yeah. do that. Okay.